This is Truth Jihad Radio, questioning official stories since 2006. Please subscribe by way of the Substack button at truthjihad.com. Welcome back. Welcome this back. is this the second, second hour of live Truth Jihad Radio show. Kevin Beard broadcasting here on Saturday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Central, where I am, and whatever time it is, wherever you are, it's always time to talk to the most interesting folks who have something outside the box to say. I'm bringing on some old guests tonight, some new guests tonight. Uh, my second hour guest is brand new to Truth Jihad Radio. She recently moved to the Uns Review, which is one of my homes on the Internet. I'm talking about Michelle Malkin. You may have seen her on Fox News or elsewhere. And she is now in the news for having been banned from Airbnb for her political views. Wait a minute. They can ban you from lodging. You try to check into the motel and you find out that you said something political that somebody didn't like and you, you can't stay there anymore. Are we all going to be homeless? Are they going to ban us from eating? Things are really uh, getting strange in America today. Let's try and make some sense of it. Hey, welcome, Michelle Malkin. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. So what's with this Airbnb ban? I, I can't believe it. So it's, you know, when did people start getting banned from accessing these kinds of basic services in America due to their political stances? Well, it's been happening for a while, but with particular regard to the dissident right, a lot of young activists and journalists and independent citizens, researchers that identify themselves as truly America first, as opposed to the appropriated generic brand that we're now seeing uh, from the Republican Party. It's been happening for quite a while, and I'm certainly not the first canary in the cancel culture coal mine on this. In fact, in 2019, when I came out with my latest book called Open Borders Incorporated, I dedicated it to many of the patriots who have already been suffering de-housing, de-platforming, de-banking, uh, and now most recently, um, a twist of deplaning. Um, there are a number of individuals, and I'm trying to get a complete list of them through a Freedom of Information Act request, who've been either put on the no-fly list or designated by the TSA as heightened security and either stopped and uh, swabbed for bomb-making materials, um, prevented from booking tickets online, this type of thing. The designation is SSSS, and I identified at least two individuals who had uh, been classified as such. So the idea that I could be retaliated against by a service provider of public accommodations like Airbnb is certainly in keeping with that trend. Uh, the new twist or new wrinkle, at least to my mind, is the fact that not only I was punished specifically for speaking at the annual American Renaissance Conference last November, but my husband's account was also deleted, and he is not a public figure. He's not a journalist. He wasn't at the conference, um, but it doesn't matter, <laughs> and the idea that it was my uh, speech was also um, pretextual because 
Airbnb didn't bother to obtain a, a transcript or a video of the speech before they made this decision. So this wasn't really about anything you said. It was about associating with the wrong people. It's guilt by association. And I guess they're saying that American Renaissance is, quote unquote, a hate group. So whatever you say at their convention, it's equally bad, uh, which is, strikes me as very strange. You know, uh, if I were invited by any group to talk to their convention, I'd probably go. And if I disagreed with them, I would explain why. Then I guess I would get banned by Airbnb just for having been to their convention if it's a convention that Airbnb doesn't like. Uh, I, I really don't understand that logic. Yes, and uh, your family members, and here's what concerns me as a mom of two young adult children who are just embarking on their lives, uh, just forming their own identities, professional, personal, political. The idea that my children could be uh, held responsible for the alleged sins, which they are not, uh, of their parents, um, of course, is is <laughs> is of a piece with the basic fundamental notion of the types of people who plied critical race theory, woke politics, um, and guilt by association, and uh, convicting every last white person of the sin of slavery in America. It's all of the of the same thinking. It's all of the same piece. And I think there's particular retaliation against me, not just by woke corporations, not just by the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League. I mean, a lot of these are all our our common enemies, but uh, so many people on the right. And I think that's what makes this particular case and circumstances interesting for a lot of reasons, um, because there is a, a long, deep history of establishment conservatives and influencers and swamp creatures who've been doing this all the way back to when Sam Francis appeared at the American Renaissance Conference uh, and then was drummed out of his job as an award-winning columnist at the Washington Times at the hands of somebody who actually helped inspire my career in the first place, Dinesh D'Souza, uh, who had spoken at my college campus in the late 80s, early 1990s, when he came out with his first book. <laughs> and I have to tell you that it was a weird experience because he invited me on his podcast to talk about being canceled by Airbnb and, um, you know, sort of sticking to the conventional criticism of this being a, a, a manifestation of left wing tyranny when, as I pointed out, as politely as I could uh, in the interview, it wouldn't have happened without the collusion and the conspiracy of so many of uh, these people on the right who actually cringe in fear um, when you dare to talk about issues, particularly of, of race and immigration and culture in exactly the kind of candid manner that they pretend they're doing and, of course, um, make livings at. You know, they, they, they fashion themselves at the forefront of fighting cancel culture when so many of them have been at the forefront of um, helping enact and impose it in the first place. 
And it seems like you've made a transition from being very mainstream acceptable and uh, probably doing quite well uh, socially and financially in that mainstream. And now you're with me at the UNS Review. That's U-N-Z dot com. I think it's the most interesting uh, webzine out there. Um, did you make a conscious decision to uh, change in any way or did it just kind of happen that way? I did make many conscious choices along my path from Fox News pundit, mainstream con Inc. figure to where I am now. And I've never been more comfortable and felt um, more edified and um, I hate to use like a pop psychology term, but self-actualized in the sense that I'd always felt on the outside, uh, even when I was in the swamp. And the core issue that helped launch my career in the first place and the vehemence with which I um, beat the drum uh, over immigration issues and the importance of uh, systemic, unapologetic enforcement my evolution over the years from merely critiquing illegal immigration to understanding the horrible impact that mass immigration had demographically uh, on the United States, what um, the Hart-Seller Act meant um, for the ability of this country to preserve um, its historic um, roots and uh, demography and of course the electoral impact that that had uh, on Republican politics. I started my journalism career in Los Angeles in 1992 and of course the the impact not just of 1965 but of, of the Reagan um, amnesty uh, and what that presaged for, you know, decades and decades afterwards. Um, you know, it was curious to me that more of my colleagues in Con Inc. in whether it was L.A. or D.C. or New York were somehow not connecting the dots. Uh, and, of course, speaking of connecting the dots, following the money to find the truth about why all my friends were rather silent about it or taken aback or even offended um, once I started uh, expanding my uh, critiques and attacks and, event- and investigative work from the southern border to um, our in- entire legal immigration system and uh, especially with H-1B, OPT, programs like this that uh, (laughs) you'll never hear most of the uh, mainstream conservatives uh, critiquing. Well, at least until uh, Trump and some of his best immigration thinkers came along, um, as well as Jeff Sessions, um, I think, deserves a lot of credit for that as well. That's just one area where I, I started evolving. And you know, the thing about my own career and my work is I'm an open book. I mean, I wrote seven of them for one thing, um, established my first beachhead on the Internet um, with my eponymous blog in 1999, actually built it with Microsoft front page. Um, it would take a day to update a single page. Um, and, you know, I've written 
thousands upon thousands of blog posts and syndicated columns. So and all, that's all moved over to uns.com now. And so, yes, so I was going to uh, get to that. So um, after I wrote Open Borders Incorporated, I was very concerned about uh, San Francisco-based uh, tech companies like WordPress, which was my um, blogging platform and software and had been for a decade, I think more than a decade. Um, a friend of mine, Ann Corcoran, who uh, runs an incredible website called Refugee Resettlement Watch, did did and still does a lot of uh, great citizen investigative research on the resettlement program, um, had her uh, blog just completely torpedoed. WordPress just uh, pulled the rug out from under her, and it was only through some small miracle that she was able to recover, I think, 10 or 15 years uh, worth of work. So I thought, wow, I need a steady, independent platform that will accept me for who I am, um, have the technical uh, know-how and ability to, to port everything over and be able to withstand uh, spam attacks, DDoS attacks, which my uh, website had been um, under and targeted by over the years. And Ron Anz, I knew from my earliest days in Los Angeles, uh, he had spearheaded an initiative to uh, repeal bilingual education, I believe it was. So I had met him in the 90s. I hadn't had much contact with him since then, but of course knew that UNS was a safe haven for, you know, the, the whole gamut of um, free speech and free thought. And so, yes, I've been, you know, incredibly honored to be among so many uh, dissidents of all kinds and, and incredibly brilliant people, including you. Well, thank you so much. And I wonder to what extent you explored into some of the uh, edgy issues at on such as Ron's American Pravda series. I think that's the best go to source on looking at the kinds of issues that are often classified as conspiracy theories and thinking them through and trying to figure out which ones are true. And he's he's actually focused, of course, on the ones that turned out to be probably true. Have you looked at that stuff and uh, are you willing to talk about it? Uh, I certainly am. I haven't read the entire series, uh, and it's on my to-do list for the summer to be able to just sit down sort of uninterrupted and, and uncluttered um, and concentrate on that. But I have other uh, family members and friends uh, who have delved deeper into it, and um, I think because of my move to UNS, it has exposed a lot of uh, people to um, unorthodox and, and, you know, quote unquote, dangerous thoughts and, and dangerous articles. And, and certainly uh, Ron has uh, been one of the bravest voices, uh, is the sort of beacon um, in, in opening up a lot of those things. And, and you know, uh, and, and there are a lot of third rails that you can't talk about. And when I uh, defended a lot of young men known as groipers in 2019 for raising many of these issues, whether it was the USS Liberty or uh, unfettered and unlimited foreign aid to Israel and um, a lot of the other uh, conspiracy theories that may turn out to be conspiracy truths, I was uh, once again in the news and labeled all sorts of things. And what happened to Sam Francis essentially happened to me at the hands of uh, Ben Shapiro 
uh, the Daily Wire and then the liberal Daily Beast, once again, illustrating that it was the, uh, you know, the alliance of those two types of forces that squelch uh, exactly the kind of, of, of free thought and the daily content uh, that's uh, represented at Uns.com. And, you know, I, I uh, got involved in this political work. I mean, I've, I've delved into it here and there. You know, I read about the JFK assassination when I was in high school in the 70s. Yeah. And I knocked on doors with nuclear freeze for a year in the mid 80s. But I never thought of myself as a full time political person. I thought I'd be teaching about medieval Sufism somewhere. But then after 9-11, I looked into that issue. And the next thing you know, I was on Fox News uh, debating with Hannity and O'Reilly. And at that time, of course, you know, I perceived your work as being kind of on the wrong side of this issue, uh, to say the least. And I was part of a community where, you know, Muslims in America virtually unanimously understood that 9-11 was just obviously a false flag. I was the last one in Madison, Wisconsin, of every Muslim I ever talked to <laughs> that, that uh, you know, it took me. I said, let's hold off and look at the facts. And after a few years, I ended up looking at them and agreeing with them. So uh, from that perspective, people like, you know, I was on the no fly list for what were the slow fly list, getting the kind of harassment that you're talking about. And, of course, I've also been kicked off of various platforms here and there. So uh, from my perspective, it kind of looks almost ironic that uh, folks who kind of got misled by uh, 9-11 in, in that decade are now being scapegoated the way that, you know, me and my Muslim friends were getting scapegoated back at yeah. that time. And so maybe, you know, you know maybe you could reflect on that. I, I just I just Googled. Kevin Barrett, Michelle Malkin, and I, I assume this is you that I wrote about all those years ago. Yeah, I kind of vaguely remember something like that. I, I, a lot of people wrote about me for about, you know, my 15 minutes of fame, which stretched I'm, out into six, six months. <laughs> I'm just seeing it now, and it, I guess it was 2006. I have to go look and see what I said, but I, I, I can guess. And so, you know, it's rare that one has an opportunity to do this. And here it is on the radio. I apologize. I apologize if what I said led to exactly the type of uh, ostracization and and depersoning. And yes, it is. It's um, it's an interesting sort of confluence of events. you know, similar to the the idea of of, of Sam Francis being a cast out by Dinesh D'Souza and now Dinesh D'Souza having me on his show to talk about being canceled by Airbnb. Um, and I have uh, talked about this in the, la- in the last couple of years on um, some smaller podcasts. So you might not have seen this. Uh, there was a libertarian named Dave Smith who is some sort of uh, comedian, but also, uh, you know, did shows where he welcomed all sorts of people. And we talked about my evolution, you know, since 9-11. And there's, a, a, of course, a lot of investigative reporting and analysis on UNS that raises a lot of, you know, very deeply troubling, unanswered questions about who knew what on 9-11. Uh, that's not to say that I uh, am disavowing all of the reporting that I did uh, in the in the immediate wake awake of 9-11 and certainly the uh, work that I uh, did on the internment book that I wrote that um, upset a lot of people in a lot of different circles. Um, 
But I would say that the sort of larger evolution of my thinking, uh, Kevin, has been in sort of putting Islamic terrorism in sort of the larger uh, geopolitical context of how worrisome it should be compared to the other evils and the other foreign influences and the other types of terrorism that uh, uh, occur in the, in the world. Um, my evolution on the weapons that were created by the government uh, with 9-11 as a pretext are, are also open. Um, and I mean, I guess you could call it politically expedient uh, after I had uh, championed the Patriot Act, uh, which, of course, many civil liberties uh, folks, whether it was left or libertarian, warned would be used against American citizens. It was followed up by the Obama administration's expansion of that. Uh, and so, yes, it became clearer to those of us who had, um, I would say, with at least in my case, good faith uh, backed some of these tools, thinking that they would help uh, mitigate um, acts of, of uh, Islamic terrorism in the country. Um, and the, of course, the other thing that, that I had, uh, rethought was, uh, well, two things. Um, the, these inducements, uh, uh, by the FBI going undercover and, um, you know, using, using agents to, uh, instigate acts of terrorism that wouldn't have otherwise occurred. Uh, and then, of course, the massive uh, toll uh, sacrifice of so many American men, mostly men, uh, sent to to fight other people's wars. And I will tell you that weighs incredibly heavy um, on my conscience and my soul. Well, I appreciate your, your saying that, and I, I hope you're part of a kind of a mass awakening, and I actually see something like that happening kind of surprisingly uh, on the political right these days. I did an event recently with a local Republican Party organizer here in Wisconsin, and he brought a bunch of candidates for local office. Uh, I think there were six, seven, something. They all, uh, you know, I, I, and then I did my little talk, which was pretty rip-roaring, you know, 9-11 truth stuff, and all except one were totally on board and already aware of it. And the other one was open to it. And this is a complete flip from how things were in 2006 when it was only sort of the extreme leftish fringe of Democrats or the, that at least that side of the aisle that was open to the notion that, oh, Bush and Cheney did it sort of thing, which, of course, is overly simplified. And and so now it seems that, as, as my friend, the Republican organizer in Madison, Rolf, uh, says, Republicans are getting red pilled and, you know, you seem to be maybe uh, a couple of steps out ahead of the group. And I wonder if that process continues, uh, what kinds of ramifications we might see. Well, I, I will give, I, I give credit to these young people. Um, and that's, that really was a huge light switch for me and not to, um, take away from all of the work that's been done, for example, on places like UNS. But it was a revelation to me to see these young men not be shackled by sort of the, the, uh, the, the, the mainstream or, or establishment, um, handcuffs 
that they're invisible handcuffs because you don't, you're just so conditioned. I mean, so conditioned to, you know, stand with Israel at, at all costs and, you know, under all, uh, under all circumstances, no matter what, lest you be labeled all the wrong things, um, this type of thing. And, um, you know, it was their bravery. It was, it was challenging the TPUSAs and, and YAFs of the world. Um, and it, and it really, it really caught my attention and jolted me in in a way that I hadn't been before. So, um, so, so that's, you know, and that just sort of opened all sorts of, of dangerous doors, I suppose. Um, and, you know, even the, the, the speeches that I've given at the America First Political Action Conference, um, I, I think that they are playing a bridge role. And, you know, I guess I would dial it even back even before then, because like I said, uh, the, the, the mass migration and, uh, great replacement theories, if we, you know, you want to talk about conspiracy theories that are conspiracy truths, were let, what led me to sort of throw down the gauntlet at CPAC. Um, it was the last time they ever invited me, caused a huge splash in 2019. And I think that's when a lot of the young people who are sort of working, you know, in their, on their own plane, uh, or on their own lane on the, uh, same super highway that we were all traveling, just didn't, you know, know each other or see each other. Um, you know, that's what caused sort of a, you know, there, there to be an intersection or, or engagement. Mm-hmm. And, and so regarding the uh, the great replacement theory and the work of groups like American Renaissance, it, it strikes me that a reasonable observer would have to grant that they do have some valid points, such as uh, most nations would not tolerate an extremely rapid demographic shift like we're seeing in the United States. It's just normal that a lot of people are going to be upset. And it's actually kind of surprising that there aren't enough people who would be upset enough ahead of the, t- the fact to make sure it didn't happen, right? You know, if, if you tried to move, say, Middle Easterners or Africans or Europeans or whatever into Japan at such a rate that they would become minority and the Japanese would be the minority, Japanese probably would, would stop that. And so one has to grant that there is, you know, a kind of a basic uh, argument there that is reasonable. And yet it seems that the other side doesn't even want to engage with that and have a reasonable discussion. They just want to shut you down. And anybody who even goes to give a speech at American Renaissance has to be canceled from everything. And why is that? Well, you can't be allowed to question precious narratives, <laughs> which is, I mean, I don't have to tell you that. You know? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, uh, and, you know, the, the thing about the great replacement is then we start talking about who's really pulling the strings of our immigration policy and, and what it's in it for them. So Open Borders Incorporated was this, you know, painstaking and <laughs> I'm sure painful to read compendium of so many of the globalist groups that are responsible for everything from um, buying off congressmen uh, to set the limits higher and higher for things like H-1B visas to um, 
imposing refugees on middle America uh, in localities that are supposed to have local control um, and all of the billions of dollars that are going to nonprofit charities of faith um, who are tax exempt, of course, whether they're Catholic or Jewish uh, or evangelical Christian. So um, that's the, you know, that's the immigration part of it. But then, of course, it it um, touches on that other third rail of the types of people we want to let into the country in the first place. And there are numerous academics uh, and think tanky types. Amy Wax at the University of Pennsylvania, who's been under fire. I met her when I was on a book tour um, three years ago. Uh, for bluntly stating that there are certain countries <laughs> we should not have um, people come in from and that we should favor others. And uh, I believe that there was a conservative establishment think tank typer in Minnesota who was fired from her job uh, for plainly and, you know, very sanely stating that uh, a place like Minnesota might want to consider um, putting Norwegians ahead of Somalians. And, you know, there's any you know number of reasons why that might be a, a, a good policy to embrace. So um, the race realism that American Renaissance has um, talked about and written about for for years and years and years now, I think is becoming more acceptable <laughs> because, as I said in my speech, which is available for now um, at YouTube on both American Renaissance's uh, channel as well as mine, uh, I was in L.A. as a young editorial writer in the aftermath of the 1992 riots, and Rodney King asked, can't we all get along? And over time, at least for me, over the last 30 years, chronicling all the things I've chronicled uh, with all the pathologies and flaws in our country, unfortunately, the answer is no. <laughs> but, but then what's what's the answer to that answer? See, that's that's where I, uh, you know, philosophically, I'm, uh, of course, interested in having uh, rational discussions with with a kind of the strong uh, anti-immigration position uh people uh, and I would happily uh, accept an invitation to go talk with American Renaissance but uh I ask I always ask them you know what what could be the solution here because uh so often you know we we see that the people who get really excited about this and you see them sometimes in the comment section at at uns and other places are sort of dreaming of some kind of mono-ethnic paradise that they'll get after they, like, expel or, God forbid, kill all the people that are of the wrong ethnicity. And obviously that's kind of a non-starter for anybody who wants a decent future for themselves and their kids. So, um, you know, it would, be, it would be rational to try to slow the demographic transition, certainly. But uh, precisely, you know, how would we do that 
And how, you know, how could that be done in such a way that it wouldn't just exacerbate all of the tensions that have already grown up so much? We're, we're on that path already to such rapid demographic change that trying to get off it, it'd be a little bit like and maybe trying to turn around the ship headed for the iceberg, except the problem is, you know, you're going to hit the iceberg a lot worse if you try to turn it around than if you don't, maybe. So, so that's what, what, what is the practical real world solution to this problem? Well, there's a very immediate one and I would think that there are a lot of Americans who come from different sides of the political spectrum who might agree that an immigration moratorium, a full immigration pause, immediately would help. Um, I am an advocate of peace. I just want to make that clear. You mentioned something about people wanting to kill other people. I don't, I've never in my 30 years come across anybody who's ever advocated such a thing. Uh, and I certainly don't just to make that clear. Um, but I think that especially with all of the disruption and upheaval and hardship and adversity that people have faced over the last two years, um, you know, under this COVID tyranny, uh, that this would provide a lot of relief demographically, economically, um, educationally, I think, um, there's a, there's a lot of good reasons to, uh, put a pause on it. And one thing that hasn't changed since the beginning of my career is looking systemically at why there's uh, such a failure to enforce immigration laws that are intended to protect our sovereignty and our safety. Um, and it's by design. It's designed to fail. Um, well, if you turn off the spigot, that provides a lot of relief um, for the people on the ground and a lot of relief for the people in many of these cities where uh, the schools and the healthcare system and social services are, are all completely overwhelmed. Um, I know, I mean, you and I might disagree on a lot of things, but I think it's important for elected officials to take care of the people who are already here first. And that's impossible to do uh, when you've got um, uncontrolled amounts of people coming in uh, both illegally and legally. And, of course, the mainstream people are going to tell us that this is a, a terrible, you know, extremely radical proposal to freeze all immigration and even Someone like Trump focuses almost entirely on illegal immigration and building the wall and so on. As I recall, looking at uh, some some work, I think Ron Unz actually has done some of it on the demographic issue. It seems that slowing uh, illegal immigration wouldn't really help very much because that's actually more of a revolving door and that the demographic change is mostly happening due to legal immigration and so if that's the issue that one wanted to address, then one would indeed want to, to freeze the legal as well as the illegal immigration. And there are certainly good arguments for that. Uh, the arguments against it, of course, are that, uh, one, uh, economically, we're better off with the immigrants. Uh, they tend to be younger and we solve our age stratification problem. Uh, that is the inverse pyramid with too many old folks uh, like me heading for retirement age and not enough young workers to support us. So to solve that problem, we need to import people because our birth rates are too low. That's uh, the most common argument we hear. 
And then we also do hear that, you know, the immigrants really aren't so bad. And we hear this from Ron Unz, too, right? That is the, the whole Trumpian notion that the uh, Hispanic uh, demographic and especially the illegals are so crime ridden and so on turns out to not be true. That, in fact, the crime rates are about the same as with uh, white Americans. Uh, and then when we look at the legal immigrants, they tend to be disproportionately productive members of society. There may be some exceptions, but uh, there wouldn't be any doctors in uh, the smaller towns, or there wouldn't be enough anyway, if you, for example, banned Muslim immigrants. If you go, if you're in a place like a, the rural Wisconsin town, like where I live, you're likely to run into a Muslim doctor somewhere. So the, these are the kinds of arguments you hear that it's sort of rational policy to uh, to keep it going. And of course, also then with with the illegals, there's the issue of who's going to pick all the crops if uh, <laughs> if they don't, because the the natives aren't interested. So so how, how do you answer those arguments? Well, I just want to talk about legal immigration first and a lot of sort of uh, I've, I've, heard, I've encountered this uh, response a lot when I critique legal, legal immigration policy. You, I'm not saying that you say this, but it, it comes off up often enough that I uh, like to sort of address that head on, which is, well, your parents came here post 1965. My uh, father and mother came in 1970. Uh, my dad was a neonatologist and my mom was a public school teacher. Uh, they came here from the Philippines and, you know, built the American dream, enjoyed it, um, and were honored to, uh, enjoy all of the privileges of uh, becoming American citizens and wanted to pass that on, obviously, to their children and that animates uh, so much of the work I've done, three of my books are den- dedicated to uh, immigration enforcement and and reform. But be- just because I benefited from stupid policies doesn't mean that I should then continue to advocate for them for time and memoriam. Um, it doesn't make me a hypocrite. I think it actually makes me a good American uh, to examine a policy and um conclude after looking at all of the data and the evidence that we shouldn't continue it, even if I benefited, benefited from it myself and others in my family um, might have done so as well. Um, the idea that uh, there's no harm in bringing um, unlimited or large numbers of uh, young uh, foreigners from other countries because they're the best and brightest and they have something to give this country that um, doesn't already exist here uh, is just not true. Uh, and I would recommend that Ron, maybe I should send him sold out uh, the book I wrote about all of the um, legal uh, immigration programs that were harming the best and brightest American workers. Um, maybe I should send him a copy of that. But I just th- there's one statistic I think that sticks out of um, it was looking at uh, U.S. Census Bureau data and it showed that 74 percent of uh, the people in America who had bachelor's degrees in all the STEM fields, which, of course, all of the kids are always encouraged uh, to pursue in order to get uh, good jobs and, and good lives we're not employed in STEM occupations and it is all tied to replacement of those workers as they become um, liabilities financially for the big business corporations 
who could replace them with much cheaper foreign labor from China and India. And um, I think that there are a lot of people on the other side of the aisle who were also very concerned about this until it was sort of politically inconvenient to find themselves on the same side as uh, people that they disagreed with on other issues. And one of the heroes uh, in trying to limit the damage of H-1B was Bernie Sanders. And then he stopped talking about it. Um, once Trump came to power. And that's a shame because not a lot of um, liberals in most corporate media seem to care about the plight of the Disney workers or the Northeast utility workers or the Edison workers or the Harley Davidson workers, because it's not just tech jobs, but of course it's IT workers in pretty much every industry who were facing the prospect of not getting their severance pay unless they trained the foreign H-1B workers who were about to take away their livelihoods after investing all of this time and energy uh, in education and obtaining the degrees that were supposed to help secure the American dream for them. Right. That, that's a great point. And actually, I think Ron Unz is on your side on that. I think where, okay. where he departed uh, from at least some of the uh, conventional anti-immigration wisdom was in uh, using uh, facts, figures and statistics to show that, in fact, the Hispanic demographic and immigrant demographic in general and specifically the illegal immigrant demographic had no did not add to American crime rates at all, really. Um, but I think he agrees with you on the uh, economic side of it, as as I do, actually. And and I think we could even add that it's good for the countries where these immigrants are coming from to not allow them to come here because that the brain drain is one of the biggest problems these countries face. Uh, well, and- yes. I mean, it really would be the most sort of compassionate means of um you know, bootstrapping all of these third world countries, <laughs> you know, instead of uh, sending them billions of dollars in, 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 in foreign aid. I mean, and it's interesting because you look at, at countries like India or or the Philippines. And um, I mean, I I always puzzle when I I've, I've been back to the Philippines three or four times now, all of the incredible natural resources they have uh, and, you know, a really hardworking uh, population, uh, you know, majority of them Catholic, English speaking, uh, high levels of education at home. Um, and it's a basket case. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I have I've had some personal experiences along those lines with uh, Morocco. My wife is Moroccan and mm-hmm. she came to the U.S. after placing at the very top of a national English language exam, leading her to be recruited by the Disney Corporation to ostensibly come and further her education while working at the cultural uh, center in the Epcot Pavilion in Orlando, Florida. So she got brought over here. And it turned out then when I went back to Morocco with her after we were married uh, uh, with a child on the Fulbright program, the Fulbright program head at the U.S. Embassy in Rabat, Morocco, uh, who I later learned was allegedly also the CIA station chief, uh, but I didn't know that at the time, was the guy who had essentially stamped her whatever it was or recruited her and sent her to the United States. And he was actually under pressure, apparently, from the Moroccan side to try to avoid having these Moroccans that were sent over on this kind of program uh, to marry somebody like my wife did in the United States and stay in the U.S. because, of course, that brain drain issue is a huge problem for Morocco. 
Um, and so he kind of, uh, you know, gave us a, a bit of a look when he first saw us when we came back there for the Fulbright programs. Don't, don't I know you? Oh yes, you know you were one of those runaways. And oh man, got me in trouble. Thank with the you Roberts. for calling the law office of Lauren Martell. Oh, I look forward to returning your like telephone we were, uh, call. To bring so on please a, a leave caller. your we had, we had, number uh, and a Lauren brief Martell message. Lauren Martell wanted to call into the show and ask you a question, Michelle. Uh, she's a, a, apparently a proud descendant of Charles Martel, the hammer. Uh, <laughs> and so anyway, uh, she's, she's running for attorney general somewhere. And I just heard about this from my friend Rolf right before the show. But it sounds like she's not there, which is fine because we're having a good enough conversation anyway. So, so Michelle, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually, you know, you and, and actually Bernie Sanders and me and, and Ron Unz and probably a lot of other people who think about it actually kind of tend to agree with this, that American workers are getting royally screwed over by this policy of replacing them for the benefit of big corporations. And uh, I wonder if if this is ever going to catch on among the Bernie Sanders demographic or if being skunked by Trump has sort of permanently made the left uh, put them in bed with with the corporate exploiters. Well, that's what it seems like, because Bernie was rather chastened and AWOL on the issue. Um, and, you know, to the extent I mean, I understand their distrust, certainly, um, but it would be nice if, if there could be some reaching on the aisle across the aisle on types of things. Hello. Oh, looks like we have our caller. Uh, sorry, Hello? Michelle. Uh, Hello, this is, is this Lauren Martell? Hello. Hello, Lauren. Hmm. You know, uh, I'll, maybe, uh, Mr. Rowe, you can, uh, just skip trying to get in touch with Lauren because we only have a, a 10 minutes left and it sounds like we have some kind of a connection issue with her. Uh, and so she can always email me the question. Maybe I can pass it on to you, Michelle, if it's good enough it, to, to merit your consideration. Uh, okay. Um, so it, yeah, your work on this immigration issue really uh, sounds pretty uh, reasonable, rational, and certainly far from anything that would be uh, called uh, hate. And yet that hate moniker is what was used to ban you from Airbnb, ban your husband who has nothing to do with this uh, from Airbnb. Uh, this, this term hate has really been used to shut down a lot of speech um, along with you know, COVID stuff and uh, questioning any election results, we can never admit that any American presidential elections could possibly not be 100 percent honest uh, or will be deplatformed. So so what, what are your thoughts about how how do we uh, deal with this notion of uh, of hate as a category that allows reasonable discussions to be shut down? Well, the Southern Poverty Law Center and all of its satellite minions, um, all of these arbiters of what is left, what is right, what is far right, what's unacceptable, what constitutes incitement to violence. Essentially, the existence of the America First movement is an incitement to violence to these people. Uh, and there was some glimmer of hope when Insiders at SPLC were blowing the whistle on everything from um, financial shenanigans within what it, it's liberals who called them the, the poverty palace. You know, that wasn't a label that came from the right uh, to allegations of racial discrimination um, within its headquarters. Uh, I believe there were allegations of sexual harassment as well. And so there was a, an outside auditor that was called in, some former Obama official, and they laid low for a while. But it doesn't really matter because the blueprint of 
um, organizing boycotts and uh, doing everything possible to de-person, de-platform. Uh, anyone who threatens authority and threatens narratives is 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 already well ensconced in the um, media, political, entertainment complex. I mean, they all work together. And I referenced uh, Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire and um, the liberal Daily Beast as having sort of colluded on these types of things. Most mainstream newspapers will still just regurgitate um slime from SPLC and that was on display on the front page of the Idaho Statesman which went after the lieutenant governor who um, gladly accepted my endorsement for her gubernatorial campaign I can't remember the exact wording of the headline but essentially far right commenter with white supremacy ties endorses lieutenant governor (laughs) (laughs) and then just a lot of regurgitation of either the SPLC there's another one of these groups um, at Georgetown University you know this just this big echo chamber but I think I mean just to sort of end on a, 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 a white pill that um, there's always overreaching and the all of these phrases that are hurled around incessantly have become completely meaningless and a, a joke. And I think most mainstream people um, who pay even, you know, an iota of attention just are are just they're numb to it. Now, you know, OK, they still hold these people still hold sway with the Airbnb and, and uh, most newsrooms. But, um, you know, I live in Colorado. I've lived here 14 years uh, in my daily life. It's not something that uh, has an impact on me, um, you know, much to the chagrin of these types of people. Uh, and, you know, if I'm not able to get on a plane next week, I, I won't mourn all that much because being on a plane is rather miserable these days. That's for sure. Well, I, I wonder if the establishment has maybe bitten off a little more than it can chew, chew with this collapsing COVID narrative. Uh, I was talking in the first hour with James Howard Kunstler, a uh, terrific writer, uh, who, who has predicted that this crumbling of the establishment COVID narrative, you know, they're backtracking very rapidly just in this past week. We've seen them, you know, admitting all sorts of things and, and country after country is lifting restrictions and we're all going to just have to live with COVID. And it turns out that the COVID dissidents were right about a bunch of these things. And when people wake up and realize how their businesses were destroyed and their lives were wiped out and their, their kids were harmed psychologically through all of these insane COVID policies, this is going to contribute to a kind of populist uh, disgust with the same powers that be that are pulling off the kind of immigration policies that you don't like. And and we could see a kind of coalescing of popular anger. Uh, Jim Kunstler is worried it could get out of control and, and cause, uh, you know, damage to the country. But um, it also probably has a positive side, too. Uh, do you do you see that happening in the next uh, who knows how long uh, next months or years? Um, well, I want to I, I would love to talk. I would love to have a, a deeper conversation about vaccines because it's been one of my other core issues uh, since 2004. Um, my son was born in November 2003. In 2004, I wrote a syndicated column that was uh, widely published about how my <laughs> this, is, this is a theme. My family was banished from our pediatric practice. Uh, uh, we were completely ostracized and shunned merely for requesting that 
um, we delay administration of the Hep B vaccine uh, when he was a newborn and then when he came in for his first well baby visit. Um, unlike with my uh, firstborn child, my daughter, um, we had a little bit more time to think before uh, they started jabbing him with uh, my son with um, untold numbers of jabs, which we had not researched and had no clue um, what was in them or what they were supposed to do. So we were sort of original. I mean, talk about uh, canaries in the cancel culture coal mine. We were canceled from our uh, pediatrician simply for asking to delay uh, that vaccine. And then when um, I think I can't remember which presidential campaign it was, maybe it was 2012, 2008 or 2012, whenever Rick Perry was um, a an early and, and then failed um, GOP um, contender, I brought up the fact that uh, his entire staff, um, which had left the governor's mansion, cashed in and all become uh, Merck lobbyists, uh, succeeded in getting him to issue an executive order uh, mandating that no middle school Texan child would be allowed to have access to education unless they got the Gardasil vaccine, um, which had been completely in its experimental phases and uh, which is purportedly intended to prevent cervical cancer. He was mandating it for not only girls, but boys. And it wasn't until there was a grassroots parental revolt of vaccine hesitant and vaccine uh, resistant parents uh, that he rescinded that order. In 2019, before anybody knew what COVID or Wuhan was, I wrote a column warning about how the WHO, along with Big Pharma, was um, stamping out vaccine hesitancy on Facebook and Twitter and what that um, meant um, in the future for any dissidents when it came to questioning big pharma or talking publicly about children who had been vaccine injured. Well, now more people know all about that stuff. And all I have to say, Kevin is better late than never. Yeah, it's 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 been uh, too late for a lot of people. Um, and who knows where this is all going to go with with the covid stuff. But there there is that official narrative on everything from, you know, vaccines and masking and distancing and so on uh, to the need for all the lockdowns that destroy the economy. And the complete failure of those policies is very likely to bolster uh, the kind of populist revolt against these uh, managerial types who have made such a, a screw up of, of so many of these things. Well, you know, Michelle, I'd love to talk to you longer about uh, other issues. We are getting pretty close to the end of the show, though. So uh, maybe you could quickly sort of uh, send people to your column and uh, and maybe mention uh, your, your latest book. What, what is the latest book you published, by the way? It was 2019, Open Borders Incorporated. That's right. And uh, people can find me at uns.com, Michelle Malkin. Uh, and I'm still on the, you know, the normal big tech channels, although greatly suppressed. Uh, and if people want to communicate me with me, um, my email is Michelle Malkin Investigates at ProtonMail.com. And I am also active on Telegram. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. And I do really appreciate your your uh, apology about the 
uh, post 9-11 uh, war on terror syndrome that afflicted so many people. And I wonder if I'll ever get that kind of apology from Shan, Sean Hannity or Bill O'Reilly, uh, were the people who yelled at me on their shows at that time. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. Don't hold your breath. You know, I, I, once I'm, I've reached middle age, I, I reexamined a lot of things. And one of the things I try to do in my daily life, uh, is to make things right and also to have a lot of gratitude. And uh, people who listen to my speech or watch it um, from my American Renaissance Conference uh, will notice that. Um, paying a lot of tribute to many people who came before me uh, in realizing the things that I realize now and paid much higher prices. Here, here. Well, uh, amen to all of that. And God bless you. Uh, keep doing uh, the terrific work and, and continue you know, to learn. We all have to keep learning uh, throughout life and figure out what's really going on in this world of deception. So thank you so much, uh, Michelle Malkin. Uh, keep it up. And I hope to talk again sometime. Thanks for the chat. My pleasure. Okay. Take care. That's Michelle Malkin. I'm Kevin Barrett. The website is truthjihad.com. You've been listening to Truth Jihad Radio. Tearing up the radio airwaves since 2006, back when I got uh, chased out of the university by Fox News personalities. Uh, Not so much Michelle, but rather Bill O'Reilly and, uh, of course, the unforgettable Sean Hannity. Okay, we'll be back next week with another live show, God willing, uh, next Friday, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 to 9 p.m. Central. This is Kevin Barrett of TruthJihad.com signing out. Until next time, bye-bye.